Hello, everybody. Greetings to everyone. Good day, good evening, wherever you are. And welcome to the 74th live episode of Ask Abhijit. I can see all your comments. Uh, very nice to see you all. Let me see who all is there. Yuvraj Garg, Mayank, Aniket, Harsh Jain, Krishna, Killer Joker, Shukti, Anurag, Raghav, Samrat, Kunal, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Hemlo, <laughs> Dairia, Prashant Yadav, Shashwat, Gaurav, Sampriti, Akash, Rathor, and many, many, many people. Good evening, good day to all of you. It's great to have you with us tonight. So as you know, today is a live chat episode. I'm going to be taking your questions and comments from the live chat, which is in front of me. So be ready with your questions and go ahead, ask your questions. And, and I will also take a few questions from the comments that you all have put in the past, just to keep a nice mix going. But most of the questions will be from the uh, live chat. So let us see. We sometimes see a guitar in the background of your videos. Do you play the guitar? Yes, I play the guitar, but uh, off late, I have not played much. I am kind of out of touch with it because no time. But yes, I'm a big fan of music. And uh, you could say I'm an amateur musician to some extent. Right. Mm, what questions do we have? Who are the Hazara people? What is their origin? Do they have connections to Indians and ethnicity? Please demonstrate through maps. I can't pull out the relevant maps right now on demand. That's not possible. But I can answer your question. So the Hazara people are most likely the descendants of the soldiers of the Mongols, the soldiers of Chinggis Khan. So exactly 800 years ago, slightly more than 800 years ago, there was this great battle in uh, in Punjab between Chinggis Khan and the fugitive Jalaluddin Khwarezmi. So what had happened is that in 1221 AD, uh, Chinggis Khan invaded the Khwarezm Empire in retaliation for their uh, terrible actions. He conquered the Khwarezm Empire, Khwarezm Empire. He destroyed it essentially, totally. Uh, the Shah of Khwarazm ran away in one direction. He eventually died in the Caspian Sea. And his son, and his son Jalaluddin Khwarezmi, he fled southwards and eastwards towards India. So Chinggis Khan, he sent his army to pursue him. And eventually Chinggis Khan himself caught up with Jalaluddin and he defeated him on the banks of the Indus River. His entire army was destroyed and Jalaluddin fled, fled into India and Chinggis Khan did not bother with pursuing him because the army was destroyed. So then he had invaded, uh, he had come into Punjab via Afghanistan, northern India, Gandhar. So while going back to China, because there was a re Chinese rebellion underway already. So to go back, while going back to China, he left behind some soldiers in Afghanistan, in Gandhar, to administer the region because he, has, he had conquered it. So most likely the Hazara people are the descendants of these uh, administrators and soldiers of Chinggis Khan who were left behind to administer the region. So uh, in the Mongol army, the smallest, I mean, there were many divisions of the army, but uh, one of the divisions was 1,000 soldiers. 
I think the 10,000 soldier division was called a Tumen, and there was also a 1,000 soldier division of the Mongol army. So I think the Hazaras are named after this thousand soldier garrison formation or that's something like that. That's what is believed. Now, there are some people who will claim that Don call. I mean, many Hazaras claim that we are not Mongols, we are Afghans and all. They are Afghans, of course, today. They are the citizens of Afghanistan. But the ancestry is clearly Mongol in origin. I am not sure if uh, genetic tests have been done, but most likely, even if those have been done, we will find they, find that they are descendants of Mongols. They also look different. They look more like Mongols than North Indians or Afghans, right? Or than Pashtuns. So that is the uh, origin of the uh, Hazara people. Do they have connections to Indians via ethnicity? Not really. Today, ethnicities are mixed in Afghanistan because of the history of the past 1,000 years. So I am sure some Hazaras have some Pashtun blood also and some Uzbek, Tajik blood, etc., but overall, they are a distinct ethnicity. They are not closely related ethnically to the Pashtuns, who are an offshoot of the overall Indian population. So, that is the answer to your question, sir. All right, let's take some other questions. Uh, Manish Kumar says, how Gandhi freed India? If not Gandhi, then why British give us freedom? I'm not sure what it means, but I have spoken at length about this. So you can look at my older videos. Where did R1A1 originate from? It originated from India, the Indian subcontinent. It's a descendant of the uh, of the haplogroup. It's, it's an eventual descendant of the haplogroup F, which is an Indian origin haplogroup. Right. What else? What else? What else? What else? Um, do I have to answer this? Which civilization was first, Egyptian or Indian? I think we all know the answer. The oldest known civilization on the planet and the oldest continuously existing civilization on the planet, both are the Indian civilization. India civilization, we have archaeological evidence of cultural continuity for around 10,000 years. And we haven't done proper archaeological research in India. The more we do, the more we'll find. So actually, India civilization may go back 15, 20,000 years. Genetically, we have the same lineages which are alive today in us. Those are at least 20, 25,000 years old. And the ancestral lineages around 70,000 years old. So the oldest civilization, archaeologically, culturally, civilizationally, and genetically is India. In one of the interviews, Mr. Goha, historian, who says he's a historian? Historian said that India doesn't belong to any particular religion or a language. How true is this comment? Mr. Goha is not to be taken seriously. That's all I can say. Okay. Was there any Indian traveler who went out of India in ancient times? Was there any Indian like Ibn Battuta, Marco Polo, etc.? I didn't hear any name. If not, why? We know Indians had contacts with the Roman Empire 2000 years ago. Indians were, uh, were sailing to Rome and uh, say, selling, trading. Uh, they were selling spices and other, other uh, commodities which were manufactured in India, and they were taking back gold to India. We have extensive evidence of that, right? Uh, we, there, is an, there, is, uh, there is this statue which was found, I think, in Pompeii. It is a Lakshmi statue, most believe. It's clearly an Indian origin statue. Either it is from Gandhara or it is from the Chandraketuga region of Bengal. 
So again, there is evidence of Indians there. Uh, we know there that Indians had contacts with uh, trade and other contacts with uh, with Egypt. India is a much older civilization than Egypt. We know that around 4,000 years before today, four four and a half thousand years before today, an Indian genetic component entered Australia. We know it. It is it is proven beyond any doubt. All Aboriginal or indigenous Australians have about 10% Indian DNA, right? We know the extensive uh, contacts between India and Southeast Asia starting about 3,000 years ago at least via Kalinga trade contacts. It is still commemorated in the Boita Bandana and the Bali Yatra and all that. So there are there have been thousands and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Indians who went all across the known world in ancient times, thousands of years before today. We know that the Indian cattle uh, were introduced into Africa in two waves. One is about 4,000 years ago in Egypt and one is about 10,000 years before today. And these cattle don't migrate on their own. Okay, let's go for a migration or voyage. No, these are domestic cattle. These are the Zebu cattle, the Indian cattle. The big humped bull you've seen, right? On the Indus Valley Seals, Saraswati Valley Seals. That's, that's one. So that introgression into Africa, it first happened about 10,000 years ago. So clearly Indians took those cattle into Africa. So these are some of the uh, things I can tell you. There's much more if you go into further detail. Lots and lots of waves of migrations and all so, so on. So Indians traveled all over the known world in ancient times. Why are the names no longer recorded? Because we lost all our records a thousand years ago when all the temp when all the temples, the libraries, the universities were all destroyed by the Turks. We allowed this to happen. That's why we don't have any names. That's why you don't hear any name. But there is clear evidence of Indians being present all across the ancient world thousands of years before today. Right. Max Gaming says, please tell us about Sana Mahism in Manipur, the indigenous Methi religion, Methi religion and its connections and influence from Hinduism. So Sana Mahism is, it's not an ism. It's a polytheistic belief system. Uh, the great, it's at least minimum 2000 years old, mini minimum, maybe three and a half thousand old, years old or maybe even before that. So the uh, the major deities are Pakhangba and Sanamahi. Uh, and then, so Pakangba is the dragon king, or or the or the snake snake king. Uh, is he's supposed to be the ancestor of all the Meite people, Manipuri people, right? Uh, so, and there is an entire uh, pantheon of gods or divinities around him. It's, it's it's a polytheistic belief system. There's also elements of uh, nature worship, ancestor worship, and all that. So it is a full-fledged polytheistic belief system. It is the indigenous belief system of the Meite people of Manipur. Now, uh, Manipur, as you know, is part of uh, what we call Northeast India. And we know that uh, Indian culture spread far and wide across Southeast Asia for, for at least around 3,000 years, right? So it is no surprise that there are, there are elements of Hinduism in Manipur. There have been influences because like it's right here. So influences have been there. Neighboring Burma is also like fully influenced by Indian culture. Now it's called Buddhism. But if you look into detail, there are elements of Hinduism throughout Burma, 
uh, Thailand also is called a Buddhist country, but there's so much Hinduism in there as well, which is now termed as Buddhism. So uh, the story is that uh, there is this king, uh, what was his name? Bhagyachandra. So Bhagyachandra officially decreed under the uh, influence of a Gaudiya Vaishnava preacher called, uh, not preacher, uh, a priest whose name was Shantidas Adhikari or Shantidas Gosai. So uh, this king, Chingthang Khumba or Bhagyachandra, he came under the influence of this Bengali priest and he officially declared uh, Gaudiya Vaishnavism to be the official state uh, religion, so to say, of Manipur. So that happened, I don't know, about 400, 350 or 400 years ago. Uh, obviously, there, are, there were Vaishnava temples, etc. in Manipur before that also. His ancestors also had some connection with, with Hinduism. And uh, the influence has, has always been there for thousands of years in this region. So officially, it became the state religion about somewhere around that time. And... Um, and then what happened is that Sanamaism wasn't stamped out. There is a story of the sacred books of the uh, Sanamaism called the Puyas that were burned by this guy, Shantidas Gosai. That's nonsense. The king, if it happened, it was a king who decreed that it to be done. So you can't blame Shantidas, Shantidas Gosai for that. But what happened is that uh, Vaishnavism, Gaudiya Vaishnavism became the official state religion and it essentially got syncretized with Sanamaism. So if you look at... Um, Meite people today, they in one corner of the house, they will have the gods, which will be Lord Krishna, maybe uh, Radha, and also the Sanamahi gods as well. So that's the, the way it is, you know. So these are not exclusive belief systems. There is no exclusivism in polytheism. Look at Russia, um, I'm sorry, not Russia, <laughs> look at Japan, Shinto, and Buddhism and Hindu, Hinduism are all beautifully synchronized, syncretized together. Right, so that's the same sort of thing you see, you find all across Asia. Wherever Indian culture has gone, it has syncretized and intermingled with the local culture. So in Manipur today, the Metis are considered to be Hindus. Some nowadays say that we are not Hindus; we are uh, we believe only in Sanamism and so on because of the Marxist influence and all that. So the essential thing is that Hinduism is not an intrusive religion. Or, or in something that was imposed upon the people, the king himself accepted it, and people also practiced it, right? So that's the story in in brief. Uh, it's a very fascinating uh, part of India and very interesting history. I would recommend you guys all study more about it. Um, if you can find the uh, find uh, sources and references online. So nice, good question. All right, let. Um, what kind of feminism is needed in India is what Sampriti Goswami asks. We don't need feminism in India. Feminism has a completely different context. It emerged out of a different environment. It, it, feminism originates in the English-speaking world, mainly in North America, but also so, to some extent in the UK, in England. And we know what sort of lives women led over there. They were terribly, terribly, terribly oppressed. So it emerged about 200 or so years ago, slowly, via different people. I can go into that in detail. I don't remember the names right now of the ladies who started that. But uh, So it emerged, it was necessitated by the oppressive environment in which women lived. There was, They had no rights, they had no voting rights, they had no property rights, they were essentially just slaves or servants or property of the men they married or, they, or their fathers and so on. So this movement arose out of that 
and it was needed it was a legitimate and much needed movement and it did emancipate women greatly over time in the west in the west where it was needed in india women have never been oppressed yes in the past 1000 years certain things have crept into indian society out of a need to survive women had to start putting this parda and staying indoors because of certain reasons the turks invaded and occupied india they had a very different way of looking at women they did not look at women as individuals as human beings they looked at them as pieces of meat as property and an uncovered woman is fair game for any kind of behavior so that's why indian women had to go indoors and hide indoors and if they went out they had to cover their faces and bodies and all that nonsense right so that doesn't necessitate feminism what we need in india is a re- is a return to indian values indian values put women it they gave women the highest of respect the highest of respect right so no feminism is needed in india india doesn't require feminism it doesn't belong in the, it doesn't belong in the indian context at all everything is context specific it emerged in the west because of the context because of the 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 environment that women were in the situation that women women were in women are not oppressed in india of course there are certain sections of society where they they have other they they face other problems but overall if you look at indian culture it uh, perceives women with the highest of respect and the highest of regard and uh, there is no question of needing some emancipation or empowerment yes certain problems have crept into indian society those need to be addressed but not with western medicine we just need to go back to our own culture and values that's all so that's what i have to say but it's a interesting question sampriti good question Okay Rajwardhan says what's the science what was the science behind the extraordinary structures of our ancient temples why every village has its own deity is there a science behind it there is no science in religion okay there is no science in faith in culture culture and spirituality and philosophy are separate from science science has always been an integral part of indian civilization because for a civilization to make material progress you need science but when it comes to deities and all there's no science behind that there is culture behind that culture civilization and spirituality that is what uh, governs the um, belief system and all that right now what about the extraordinary structures of our, our ancient temples it's all geometry it's all architecture and it's all about understanding how to use rock most of our ancient temples were made out of rock many monolithic temples exist carved out of a single rock look at the great kailash temple in elora it's carved out of a single rock face and so on so our ancestors were extraordinarily gifted they were they, they were great at architecture at understanding the composition of rock and how to use uh, geometry to to uh, create various kinds of shapes and of course there was a certain uh, way um, a certain manner in which temples were aligned it was all uh, based on the human form actually so there's a whole different uh, aspect to that maybe i can call some architect who understands this and we can have a discussion about that because this is a very interesting topic actually so let me put that on my to do list 
for you to get more details and a proper perspective about this. It's a fascinating topic. So, but uh, for now, in in brief, this is what I can tell you. Okay, what else? Okay, let me take a couple of questions from the previous comments. So let me remove this. Yes, okay, and let's take a question from a comment. Uh, Shreya, Shreya Vaishnav says, how can I find my passion? How do you find your passion? I'm expecting, Shreya, that you're quite young, must be, uh, let's say you're a teenager or let's say you're 20 or so. So at a young age, it's not often that you know exactly what you want to do in your life. When you're young, you're kind of clueless. You're looking around every week, you find some new passion, but then, you know, it, it kind of dissipates and then you want something else. So how do you find your true passion, your true purpose in life? How do you know which food you like the best? If you just eat dal chawal every day, will you know which food is the best for in, in your opinion? If you just eat one or two uh, kinds of food every single day, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, then you will never know what's out there in the world and you will never develop your palate. And you will never realize, you will never figure out what food you like the best. So to figure out what food you like the best, you have to try all kinds of different dishes. You have to explore. You have to go on a ta taste test to different uh, and try different cuisines, different uh, varieties of food. And then over time, you'll figure out what you like the best. Similarly, to find your passion in life, to find your purpose in life, you have to try lots of different things. Don't stick to a narrow road. Try lots of different things. Explore lots of different things. When you're young, you can afford to try lots of different things. Right? Try uh, different careers in different industries. Give everything like... I, I know it's it's not as easy as it sounds because you cannot just keep on changing careers all the time. But let's say you're a student and you want to understand what thing is suited best for you. Try to learn on the side different things. Try graphic design, computer coding, pro programming, uh, being a chef, cooking, or whatever comes to your mind, right? Whatever you think would be interesting for you. L follow your curiosity, follow your, follow your interest, and try lots of different things. Only then will you be able to figure out eventually, after like three, four, five years, maybe, or maybe sooner if you're lucky, what your true passion is. So that's what you have to do. You have to give different things a chance and try lots of different things. That's how you figure out what your passion is. Now back to the comments. Back to the uh, live live chat. History maths. I don't know what that is. <laughs> is Marxism good for India? Marxism is good for nobody. Why is it that most renowned spiritual figures most of them are from Bengal reason. Uh, Vivekananda, Srila Prabhupada, Chaitanya, Paramahansa, Yogananda, Ramakrishna, Paramahansa. There are so many from outside Bengal. But you know what? Bengal is the first place the British colonized, essentially. Right. So the, you, you got lots of people emerging out of Bengal, the first really properly colonized place. Lots of people who wrote in English. And today everything is in English. So we kind of see everything coming from Bengal. So we think the Bengalis are, I'm not saying Bengalis are not great or anything. All Indians are great. Okay. But I refuse to believe that only one portion of India is somehow intellectually superior. All intellectuals come from this place. What they think today, India will think tomorrow. That is nonsense. 
all indians are great all indians are superior bengalis are not special but this is the image that has been created by the uh, by the agents of colonization i would say there are lots and lots of great people from all across india who have been totally neglected marginalized etc have you heard of adi shankaracharya was he from bengal i would say that he eclipses all these people that you have mentioned in this comment no disrespect to any of them but adi shankaracharya was a million times greater than any of them and i can think of so many other people so you know what it's not like that it's the it's a perception that has been created in our minds by the establishment by the historians by the eminent historians etc that bengal is somehow special bengal is as great as the rest of india all of india is great you have great people all across india there are many even today who are not known i'm sure we need to discover them so that is what i can say my friends how did marxism start yeah good question it started with marx and engels but there's a whole lineage before that this hegel's whose uh, ideas marx adopted and brought them forward and after marx engels continued i mean uh, marx was a guy who never worked in his entire life even though he spoke about the uh, workers and all that but he never worked a single day in his life he was supported by his best friend friedrich engels friedrich was it i think so yeah so and engels supported marx with the profits of capitalism <laughs> so marx wrote this communist manifesto he wrote das kapital in the middle of the 19th century and then it was it did not really receive much of a reception nobody cared but somehow in russia this kind of took off and eventually uh, it was appropriated in a certain way to create a dictatorship but not quite the dictatorship of the proletariat and so on you know so it's a it's a interesting chapter of history and uh, marxism is still relevant today because so many people are still marxists they believe that you know we need a classless society where everybody is equal that's nonsense my friends there is no such thing as equality in the world no two people are, e- are equal you can give them equal rights yeah but no two people are equal we celebrate inequality why do we play cricket do we want to celebrate equality everybody gets the same score and everything no we want to celebrate who's better why do we have world cup of football to celebrate inequality everybody gets the same chance but then the best will win right why do you have exams in school are you celebrating equality does everybody get the same marks does everybody get the same first rank nope some fail some pass some some rise to the top it's a celebration of inequality the world is an inequal place you can't have a classless society any functioning society is going to be a hierarchy any well functioning organization is going to be hierarchical in nature it's just the way it is whether you like it or not is immaterial facts don't care about anyone's feelings these are facts so marxism it's very easy to mislead people with marxism you know it sounds it sounds so nice everybody should be equal there should be no class no no upper class lower class nothing in society but even in marxist societies you will find hierarchies all right so so that's just what i can say in brief about this but yeah that's just how it is um how, why indian culture influenced southeast asia so much and even japan but not chinese culture who says india did not influence chinese culture who says that china today has the world's largest population of buddhists more than 200 million 
China is incredibly deeply influenced by Indian culture for 2000 years. You need to study history a little bit more. Maybe you can see some of my previous videos. I've spoken about this. And this is extensively well known how deeply India influenced China. Yes, the Chinese emperors did not follow Buddhism. They followed Confucianism and, and uh, they practiced a mix, a certain kind of mix of legalism and uh, Confucianism. Both are atheistic doctrines, but the Khan people, most of them followed Buddhism. The, the, the communists stamped that out. Even Kung Fu, what you call Kung Fu, originated in India. Look up the story. So, you know, <laughs> uh, interesting that you feel this way, but that is uh, certainly not consistent with the facts. Right, let's see something else. Mm, Utpal Chandra says, "In there's a statue in Germany which has a lion's he head and a human body like Narsimha Bhagwan. And this statue is about 40,000 years old. It, does it mean that Hinduism is 40,000 years old? What's the evidence that this is a Hindu statue? It's a, it's a, the statue is a depiction of a lion. It's a lion's face, clearly, standing on two legs, like a human being. But... Is there anything else that associates this with Hinduism or is it just a coincidence? Because you did, you, you did have lions in Europe thousands of years ago. So you know what? This is just one data point. To, make, to have a pattern, you need multiple data points. With one data point, you cannot establish a pattern. And to say that there was Hinduism there, you need a pattern. You need at least three, four minimum data points, which all point in the same direction of Hinduism. Because Hinduism is not just Narasimha. There, there are so many other uh, elements to Hinduism, to the, to the practice of Hinduism. So I would not agree that this, uh, this is uh, an indication of Hinduism being practiced 40,000 years ago. It is just a statue of a lion with, with a human-like body. So that's that's my perspective about this. I'm sure many people disagree, which you are free to do. But this is how I feel about this. All right. After the incident of Jallianwala Bagh massacre, what happened to those Indian soldiers who killed our own people? Were they punished afterwards in 1947? Nothing happened to them. Nothing whatsoever. They were following the orders of the Indian government of the British Indian government, then the post-47 government is nothing but a continuation of the colonial British Raj. So absolutely nothing happened to those people. I believe it was the Gurkha regiment. I think so. If, if I'm mistaken, I apologize. But I think it was the Gurkha regiment. Or, or if it was not the Gurkha regiment, those were Gurkha soldiers. Right. Paritosh says, "Is what is that what is that vacant space where the universe is expanding? What will happen if two universes collapse? Will they destroy each other or will we be, will be submerged? All speculation, we don't know. No physicist can give you a definitive answer to these questions. No, none whatsoever. We don't know if there is anything outside the universe. We don't know. We don't even know how large our universe is. We we There are some speculative calculations or something like that, but about 45 trillion light years across. That's speculation based upon some hypothetical calculations. But we don't know how large our universe is. We don't know what lies beyond our universe. We don't know if there are other, univer other universes out there. Yeah, possibly it, it could be so. 
but there is absolutely not a single data point that indicates this so therefore we cannot answer these questions without indulging in nothing but pure speculation so therefore my answer is i don't know if if there's somebody else who knows it i would love to hear from them but i don't know <laughs> right let's take some more questions from the ch- from the comments so akanksha says i am a jee aspirant but seeing your videos make me more interested in history i'm not able to concentrate on my studies are i dream that i should tell people what they don't know about history by becoming a historian please help i'm confused what i should do i am in the 12th standard akanksha you are very young at this age it is very easy to suddenly get drawn towards this thing and that thing at at a, at a very young age like you are it is very easy to every week find something new that you feel passionate about and maybe you are truly really deeply passionate about history and i'm glad it's happened because of watching my videos but please do not get confused and please concentrate on your studies since you are studying for the jr jee it means you are good in science the thing is this you should always have plan a plan b plan c like i said previously also i think you should right now focus on your studies i'm not saying stop uh studying history or anything whatever free time you have study history you're not going to teach people history without first imbibing lots of knowledge which takes years just getting a history degree is not going to make you a historian yeah you will be given the title of historian but you will not be in a position to teach anybody anything a true historian is somebody who has studied history for like at least 10 years in great detail just having a degree doesn't make anybody a historian right degrees are worthless they're just scraps of paper especially in the indian education system so what i would suggest is this you go ahead with your studies do you do, do your 12th do you do the jee get into an iit uh become an engineer or whatever it is that you that you are planning to become and also in the meanwhile keep studying history whatever you find interesting and maybe 10 years in the future you can change your career and profession and say that now i want to become a historian because now i have a solid foundation in history so always take a long term approach and always have multiple plans plan a plan b plan c and you can do two things in parallel why can't you right so i am very glad that you are interested in history that much but please don't give up your main thing which is your studies because see it's like this this country india needs millions of engineers and scientists tens of millions of engineers and scientists because this country is a broken country it needs to be built it needs to be it needs to be rebuilt it doesn't mean need millions of historians maybe a hundred good historians are enough right now so i would say that try and figure out in what way you can serve your country and your civilization best i am sure you can do it through history as well but that will take time so give yourself 10 years in which you do your own study of history it doesn't have to be a structured study of history just read whatever interests you but also focus on a primary career which can be primary for about the next 10 years and then maybe you can make a change so that's what i would say so don't let your sudden desire to study history derail the plan that you already have that's what i would say all the best all right all right what do we have akash rathore says why were so many prehistoric animals so big you know 
there were lots of tiny prehistoric animals lots of them but we don't find that record in the fossil we don't find the remains in the fossil record why because tiny fossils don't catch anyone's eyes there are many animals that have soft bodies no 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 skeleton for instance jellyfish jellyfish don't have skeletons right so you will never find them in the fossil record there are so many animals you will never find in the fossil record you will only notice the huge ones so that's why it looks like all the prehistoric animals were enormous but that is not the case you see when you only have a few data points it it looks like everything was like that the prehistoric environment and ecosystem was teeming with all kinds of life all different kinds of life many of them are most of them are permanently lost so we can't truly recreate a proper picture of what the world was like 100 million years before today for instance right and all the fossils that catch your attention and become famous are the ones of big animals tyrannosaurus rex apatosaurus brontosaurus triceratops uh iguanodons and many other uh, various animals but ichthyosaurs for instance the the water reptiles and so on so that's what i can say you know it's not like all prehistoric animals were very big there must have been lots and lots of i would say there must have been many many more smaller animals that have been lost in the passage of history okay this is a question i have got about 10000 times until now <laughs> kartik has been asking this week after week is de evolution or backward evolution possible during ramayana and mahabharat people were taller and stronger intellectuals than us so have we de evolved there is no such thing as forward evolution or backward evolution there's only evolution time only goes in one direction as far as we, as we can see so evolution only happens in time there is no such thing as what is the starting point of evolution i think it's a unicellular organism but then evolution took took place in various directions depending on the kind of environment we had on the planet and the kind of ecosystem and competition we had among the different different species so there is no such thing as backward evolution or something right evolution is just one directional unidirectional now during rama and mahabharat people were taller and stronger what evidence do we have of that oh we did find evidence uh, somewhere in up or something of of uh, of more ancient indians about 30 40000 years before today and the average height among these people was, was about 6 feet or 6 feet 1 1 inches so in the past indians reached their genetic potential in recent times what's happened is that because of the past 1000 years of disaster in india the enforced famines artificial famines hundreds of artificial famines indians the diet became terrible indians were just struggling to stay alive that's why the height decreased or oh, average height but today if you look at the generation z kids they are all much taller so we are again going back towards our uh, genetic potential so indians have always been a tall and strong people but we don't know when the ramayan happened when the mahabharat happened many people have made claims there is no proof nothing has been corroborated so please don't tell me that so and so person has said this date it is proven it's not proven so we don't know for sure when the ramayan happened when the mahabharat happened so we don't know at that time what was the average height of indians and how do we know that they were more intellectual than us we have always been a very intellectual people even today we have people of the same intelligence that we had 5000 or 10000 years ago but today the academic system is such that it destroys people's intelligence and curiosity 
and inquisitiveness. It hammers your intelligence out of you. So it's not that people are stupid today or their or their IQ points have decreased. It's just that the system doesn't allow talent to flourish. Right? So we have not de-evolved. We are the same people. We need to rediscover our greatness. You are all great people. Maybe you don't know it. Believe it and find the greatness within. That's what I would say. Okay, Saurabh and Harsh say about um, what's your view on the CR7 statue erected, erected in Goa? Your thoughts on Ronaldo's statue in Goa, both political view and sports development view. You know, a statue doesn't develop sports. And if you want to honor a sports person, I would want you to honor your own people. Is Cristiano Ronaldo an Indian? Is he a Goan? Yeah, I have nothing against the guy. He's one of the greatest footballers of all time. Clearly one of the top two footballers, most likely of the 21st century. One of the greatest footballers that we know of in the past 100 years, maybe. Maybe one of the top 10. So yeah, he's great. But why do we need to honor him and put make a statue of him over here? Spending our resources. It kind of points to the slave-mindedness of Indians. Many people in Goa believe that they are more Portuguese than Indians for some reason. This is a this is the fact. Many people in Goa support Brazil in the World Cup. Many Indians, for some reason, support Brazil in the World Cup. I, I fail to understand what's so great about Brazil. Whenever Brazil pl plays Argentina, I support Argentina. Whenever Brazil plays France, I support France. I don't see why there is so much love for Brazil and Portugal also in India. What is the reason for that? The Portuguese colonized India. Do, they, do you know the atrocities they perpetrated in India? So why are the victims, or the descendants of the victims of those horrific atrocities, why are they so enamored with Portugal? This is the slave mindset that people talk about. Many Indians have the slave-mindedness. Mental colonization. It is, it is sad to say this. I have nothing against Cristiano Ronaldo, but why do we need to erect a statue of that guy here in India? It just doesn't make any sense. Politic, maybe there's some political dimension to that. I don't know what it is. In sports development, you want to de develop sports? Make more stadiums and make them accessible to the grassroots people. That's how you develop sports. Give them facilities to in which to develop themselves athletically and play sports. That's how you develop sports. Everybody can watch Cristiano Ronaldo play on whatever screen they have. Everybody has a screen now. So why do, you need, why do you need a statue for, for developing sports? Makes no sense whatsoever. So I am disappointed about this. All right. Mm. Let us see what else we have. Um. We Indians are idol worshippers. That's why Ronaldo and, Brazil, and Messi, Brazil and Portugal... All right, sir, if, if that's your perspective. All right. How was the Indian government involved in remo removing the Hindu monarchy of Nepal? Now, this is an interesting question. Let me find, let me try and find some sources. Let me see, hang on. Let me find. Okay, let me share my screen. Shall I do that? Let me share my screen and, and uh, 
one second give me a minute i will share the screen and show you what happened so this is an uh, this is an article in dna india it says the, it's it quotes the ex special director of the raw and he has revealed that the raw r and aw raw throughout the monarchy in nepal so the espionage was not just limited to ensure unity among various political parties but also raising assets in nepal to carry out operations under utmost secrecy what in 1990 they launched a spectacular covert operation to bring down absolute monarchy in nepal paving the way for constitutional democracy so you can read this article it happened during the time of mr gandhi mr rajiv gandhi and essentially what happened is that india supported the nepalese maoists and uh, and uh, engineered the eventual overthrow of the hindu monarchy of nepal so read this article it is in dna india and this is the title you can pause the screen in the future and check it out so that's your answer my friends that's your answer that's how india th- overthrew the mon- mon- hindu monarchy of nepal okay what else do we have um michelangelo michelangelo says could the james webb telescope help us trace an alien civilization it possibly could so the james webb space telescope is the successor to the hubble space telescope it's a way more powerful telescope it's got a much bigger lens and it's much lighter and it's going to be placed in the l2 lagrange point in the earth's shadow about a million and a half kilometers away from earth and it's going to see the universe in a totally different light spectrum the the infrared and the and the yeah the, mainly the infrared spectrum so it's a time machine essentially it's going to go back and show us the very beginning of the first structures in the universe the first stars the first galaxies it's also be is going to be able to look at exoplanets with more detail it has spectrometers that will tell us the kind of composition the atmospheres of these exoplanets have and we may be able to possibly detect signs of alien life or alien civilizations so yes in short this telescope could actually give us the first indications of alien life or alien civilizations on planets that are not part of the solar system exoplanets this could certainly happen the moment this telescope goes online after it's calibrated it's going to start showing us things we have never seen before but it's still a a long way away from from its final destination it has many more procedures that it needs to do successfully before it can be actually deployed and considered to be operational so there are many hurdles still left to uh, overcome but yeah if it succeeds in in uh, functioning properly it's going to open up entire new vistas of the of the universe to us all right some other questions another science question space is expanding like an inflating balloon all bodies are moving away from each other like dots on the inflating balloon yeah then how do you explain blue shifts which means the body is coming towards us the universe is expanding on the largest cosmological scales of the order of parsecs which is like um, you know the thing is that the local local space 
in on in local scales like the local galactic supercluster gravity overcomes the expansion of the universe so in in local distances in the local supercluster region of our galaxy you will find that gravitational attraction over is able to overcome the expansion of the universe and that's why the andromeda galaxy is moving towards the milky way galaxy you know in about 4 to 5 billion years from today the two galaxies will merge so if you look at the andromeda galaxy you will find that it is blue shifted it's moving towards us at about 300 kilometers per second or something like that roughly so you will find blue shift and see the entire universe is in motion all the local galaxies and other other components of the universe local components are in motion some may be moving away some may be moving towards you so that's why you find some objects are blue shifted but most objects are red shifted especially the ones further away from us so that's how it is so that's why you will find that some local objects are indeed blue shifted like the andromeda galaxy it is indeed coming towards us yes hmm okay was it a good idea to decline the unsc offer the second time as it would have deteriorated our relations with soviet union and china it was the soviet union that made the offer so why will it deteriorate india's relations with the soviet with, with the ussr see the first offer was made in 1950 a permanent seat on the un security council with a veto status the americans made this our great pm shri nehru ji said no give it to china first in 1955 the us and the ussr together made a second offer again shri nehru ji said give it to china first we don't want it and mr tharoor shashi tharoor he wrote in 2003 that there was an offer in the in 1953 as well so it looks like there were three offers mr tharoor wrote this in his book so there's no question of so many people making fake claims even mr tharoor who's a, who's a great lover and worshipper of shri nehru ji he himself has said this that the offer was made or uh, an offer was made in 1953 so where is the question of deteriorating relations with the ussr the ussr itself was in, involved in making the offers and china was not some huge great power in those days it was a, it was a country that was recovering from a disastrous civil war india was a more powerful nation at the, at the time so who cares if the chinese don't like it you have to look out for your your national interest first lots of people will not like it when you become stronger and they are still not strong enough so who cares what people like it was not a good idea idea to decline an offer that would have made india's position internationally way more powerful what stupidity it was so the indian prime minister put another country's national interest ahead of his country's national interest who is he supposed to serve is he supposed to serve the people of india and the country of india or is he supposed to serve china what is the duty of the prime minister of india i mean am i am i mistaken somewhere <laughs> strange really strange maybe not so strange maybe not all right um let's let's see this one okay so i have read on quora that the gdp of india the gross domestic product of india was highest during the mughal empire but indians were living in poverty is it true 
Okay, let's take a look. Let me share my screen again and uh, show you. Uh... Okay, let's take a look at India's share of the world's GDP. So this is uh, the research of the of the economist Angus Madison. You can see the share of the world GDP of India, China, the Middle East, Western Europe, and the US over the past 2000 years. It's a rough approximation. I don't entirely agree with this. I think India's share was much higher, actually. But even if we take this, because this is the gold standard nowadays. So the first 1000 years are represented very briefly. And you can see India was the highest. Now the so-called Mughals, they came into power in India in the 15th, in the, in the 16th century, middle of the 16th century, uh, with Babur. So that's somewhere around here. There is somewhere around here. If you can see my mouse pointer, it's when India and China's GDP was more or less the same. India's GDP was declining because India was under Turkic occupation for half a century, for half a millennium by this time. So after 1000, India's GDP comes down. So during the Mughal Empire, which is between 15. 1500 so or so until 1857 India's GDP was down in the 1700s it went ahead of China again and then it crashed completely because that's when the East India Company rule starts and you can see that as India's GDP is declining Western Europe's GDP is increasing at the same time it is essentially the loot of India's treasures and wealth and everything the plunder and and Europe is being enriched, mostly Britain, at the expense of India. Right. So what the Mughals did was they, um, the Turks, not just the Mughals, the overall all the Turks, they occupied India and they destroyed India's culture. They destroyed all the temples, all the universities, everything, and they reduced Indians to to poverty. Indians were living in subjugation, but the money of India more or less to some extent stayed in India. You can see the decline is already happening because much of that money, significant portions were being sent to, to Central Asia, to Arabia, etc. But still, you, can, you don't see a tremendous decline. You do see a decline. So clearly, a, a significant amount of money was going out of India. But it is not as bad as what the British did. So the Mughals, the Turks, they did plunder India. They did send much of India's money outside to various other places, the Islamic world essentially. And they destroyed India's culture. They tried to stamp out India's culture. What the British did was they completely drained India of all its wealth, as you can see. Completely destroyed India's economy, totally. The Turks destroyed India's culture and the British destroyed India's economy completely. So that is what I can say about this. I hope it gives you a reasonably good idea of what really happened in the past 1000 years of India's humiliation. The millennium of humiliation. Okay. What books were burned were there in Nalanda University that was burned? You know, we don't have the record. So how can I tell you what books were there, sir? <laughs> We don't have the records. The records of India's history, of India's science, of everything. It is not just one university. Nalanda, Vikramshila, Takshashila, Sharda Pit, Telhara, Odantapuri. Uh, there are so many universities that we don't even know of anymore because they have been flattened 
all of these universities, they had immense libraries. Every single topic under the universe that you can think of was there. The records of 10,000 years of India's history, all were burned. All the ancient Indian treatises on science, mathematics, astronomy, philosophy, spirituality, religion, Vedic texts, Buddhist texts, Jaina texts, other texts, everything you can imagine, everything was there. Just, just one library, the Nalande library, it burned for several months. Can you imagine how many millions of books were there? So, do you want me to list them? Do you think I'll be able to list them? I can tell you what overall topics must have been there. But even that is speculation. There must be some so much more that we don't know of. So that's what I can say, sir. I hope it kind of answers your question. Let's take some other more questions. Haha. So Amanja says, finally, the Home Ministry has refused FCRA renewal for the missionaries of charity. What are your thoughts on this decision? Personally, I think that this is a great decision because several foreign funded NGOs used to stop the development of the country. Yes, I agree with your assessment. I think it's a very good move. Better late than never. See, when you have an NGO that gets money from abroad, it's usually being used to exert some sort of foreign interference in India. Other countries, they will look out for their national interest, their personal interest. Why will they care about India's interests? We have had NGOs and missionaries in India for since, since 1947. What have they done for India? In what way have they uplifted India? Uh, this woman, Teresa, Mother Teresa the Collar, she was in Kolkata for many decades. What did she do for the people of Kolkata? All she did was convert tens of thousands of people to Christianity, but did she uplift anybody from poverty? She had access to millions of dollars of funding. Millions, A million dollars was a big deal 20, 30, 40 years ago. What did she do? So, the entire purpose of these missionaries and all that is they, they, they don't care about India's interests. They don't want to uplift anybody from poverty. They don't want to alleviate anyone's suffering. It's all about foreign interference in India's internal matters. You know, NG the NGO industry is the biggest scam in India. There are more NGOs in India than there are schools. You know that? There are more NGOs in India than there are schools plus hospitals took, put together. If there are so many NGOs, why isn't India now all developed and why, why aren't all the problems already res resolved? Because the entire purpose of every NGO is to solve problems, right? So, so why are there still so many problems in India? Because the NGOs are creating more problems. They are nothing but tools of foreign interference in India. And when foreign money is pouring in, it's always for certain foreign purposes, not Indian purposes. It's not, it's not to make India stronger or better. It's to, it's to serve a purpose that the funding entity wants to achieve. So I am really glad that this missionary nonsense has been, uh, the FCRA approval has been, has been uh, not renewed. It's a very welcome step. I'm glad it has, it has been done finally. So I would say it's a very welcome step. Good job, sirs. 
Okay. Please give me a brief on At the Feet of the Master by Jiddu Krishnamurti. I haven't read it. Sorry. Very sorry. <laughs> I haven't read it, every book in the world. Uh, so, yeah. Sorry. Can't, can't answer this question. Um, the Supreme Court is taking leave for more than 100 days, keeping 40 million cases open. Yes, sir, your, your, your observation is reasonably accurate. Um, what else do we have? Can Puranas and Upanishads be written even today? I don't think so. I don't think so. Upanishads, uh, what, what are Upanishads? Puranas are essentially uh, records of ancient history. Upanishads, I believe, are commentaries on the Vedic texts. So I suppose somebody with enough erudition and knowledge could possibly write a new Upanishads, Upanishad today. It could possibly happen. Do we have anybody alive today who has that much knowledge, that much understanding, the depth of understanding required, the intellectual caliber required to do that? Because you need two things. First of all, you need a very high level of intelligence. Secondly, you need an encyclopedic understanding of the Vedas and other Upanishads. So if somebody does have these two very difficult qualities in, in the same person, then certainly it's possible to write new Upanishads. Certainly, it may be possible. Puranas, I'm not quite sure. I would say most likely not. Right, let us see some more questions. Uh, uh, many questions I've, I've answered before. See, for instance, this question, is, this, is Sanskrit the mother of all languages and influenced many other languages across Asia and Europe? I have so many videos about Sanskrit, about the, the entire Aryan invasion controversy, the Aryan invasion myth. Please, please look at those videos. There is so much content about these matters on this channel. Please look into it. So I have essentially already answered this question. You know, so, so that, That's why I'm saying, please look into it. Um... Once again, I have expressed this very, very clearly and I've gone into significant detail about this, about Mr. Gandhi's role in India's partition. I have, I have several videos about this, not just on this channel, other channels as well. So please look at that. Okay, Prasad says India has plans of inviting the Central Asian countries on Republic Day, and obviously there'll be talks on defense and trade and strategic relations and many other things. Do you, do you think that Russia will allow this? Oh, I mean, who are they to not allow this? <laughs> do you think that Russia will allow this or have a close watch at this as Central Asia is Russia's natural sphere of influence and ex-Soviet members? And what will be China's reaction if this happens as their BRI project can be in danger? Um, first of all, who is Russia to not allow this? Secondly, are we interfering in Russia's 
natural sphere of influence are we sending troops there are we sending engineers there are we constructing infrastructure there no we are inviting the presidents of five central asian republics as chief guests what is wrong with that so what is central asia let's let's in case you guys are not aware let me show you what central asia is um one second let me share my screen so this is what central asia looks like this region uh, north of india northwest of india historically this was uttara madra the uttara madra region and there is now central asia so there are five republics in central asia right so there is kazakhstan tajikistan uzbekistan kyrgyzstan and turkmenistan kazakhstan the capital is astana tajikistan the capital is dushanbe uzbekistan the capital is tashkent kyrgyzstan capital is bishkek and turkmenistan turkmenistan the capital is ashgabat and their presidents are being invited Kasim Tokayev of Kazakhstan, uh, Imam Ali Rahman of Tajikistan, Shaukat Mirziyev of Uzbekistan. I don't remember the president of Kazakhstan and the great, the great president of Tur Turkmenistan, Gurbanguly Berdimahamedov. So these are the gentlemen we are inviting for talks and for for building better relations. I see absolutely no reason for the Russians to get alarmed about that. This is a standard thing that people do, and it's a, it's a, it's nice to do that. So, uh, what was the question again? This was the question. So, Russia, they may keep a close watch on this. They are welcome to. We have nothing to hide. Uh, what will be China's reaction if this happens? Well, China will also keep an eye on this. Can their BRI project be in danger? I don't see any reason for their project to be in danger. India is not creating any infrastructure beyond India right now. And even if India has plans to do that, it will take a lot of money to do that. Billions of dollars. And there's no plan to do that. So I don't see any reason for anybody to be alarmed. If the Chinese want to keep an eye on it, they are welcome to. If the Russians want to keep an eye on it, on it they are welcome to. India and Russia have good relations and good cooperation. So it's just a way of... Uh, strengthening india's relationships with various countries historically central asia has been uttara kuru uttara madra essentially uttara madra it's it's been part of india's sphere of influence and there is no harm in maintaining good friendly and constructive relations with these countries and i think it's a very good move from the geopolitical perspective as well so i'm really glad that the prime minister has decided upon this course of action for the upcoming republic day great job Okay, let's take um, Puranas are not history. Ramayana and Mahabharata are, but Puranas are only meant to explain knowledge of Vedas through stories. Thank you for the gyan. Thank you very much. Thank you for your perspective. Um, what else do we have? Can you please put some light on the death of Sri Lal Bahadur Shastri? I am not an expert in this matter. I have not read enough about this to give you a definitive or even a quasi-definitive answer as to what really happened. But maybe somebody is an expert on this. And maybe I will invite that person for a discussion on this channel. Maybe soon. So 
watch out for that and then your question will be answered oh <clears throat> what else do we have um some interesting questions who is yamnaya <laughs> Who is Yamnaya? Well, nobody is Yamnaya today. The Yamnaya people were the uh, were a group of horse riding men, horse riders, who invaded Europe about four and a half or five thousand years before today, when the Saraswati Sindhu uh, phase of India's civilization was in progress. So these men, horse riders, warriors, brutally violent people. These guys, they invaded Europe from somewhere in the east and they rampaged across Europe, killed most of the men and then they had children with the European women and their descendants are the, are the people of Europe, modern day Europe. And their lineage was mostly R1B. Their patrilineal, paternal lineage was mostly R1B, which is a descendant of the R1 Indian lineage. So these guys who are called Yamnaya today were descendants of Indians. Their origin at some point in time was India. Their ancestors had come from India. And then these guys, they rampaged across Europe in a very short time. And uh, Western publications say that they conducted the greatest genocide, the worst genocide the world has ever seen. And they're talking about their own ancestors. So that's who the Yamnaya are. I have videos about that, detailed videos in which I have spoken about this in more detail. Uh, please look into it. Huh, what led humans to practice cannibalism? I can't imagine why human, humans would want to do that. I think during times of starvation, like, like the... Like in the 1920s, 1930s in Ukraine, for instance, the Holodomor famine, which was engineered by Joseph Stalin. At that time, there was widespread cannibalism. I also have heard, read about this, that during the artificial famines that Mao Zedong engineered in China, at that time also there was widespread cannibalism. So typically, just to stay alive, people will consume human flesh of those who have already died. That sort of terrible, terrible situations were there in the 20th century. I, we also know about this uh, plane crash in the Andean mountains. There was this uh, football team. There was on a plane that crashed in South America in the Andes mountains, high up, high altitude. And they were trapped there for, I think, months. Many of them died. So just to stay alive, they consumed the flesh of those who had died just out of desperation. So it these some such instances we know of. But there have also been certain cultures that practiced cannibalism. So what leads them to do that? I am not quite sure. I am um, sure some anthropologists would be able to answer that. So maybe, maybe so we can look into that. But I don't have a definitive answer as to why such practices would evolve. It's typically done among small tribal communities. A tribe is not a civilization or a culture. It's just an isolated band of individuals who lives together, typically deep inside some jungle and they're isolated for centuries or so. So they develop such practices sometimes. You hear about such practices being 
practiced in the past among the tribal naga people in northeastern india so they had this practice and if you look at the jungles of borneo i think cannibalism was practiced there it's there too these are again tribal communities and and i think even in the south pacific islands the polynesian islands you had uh, cannibalism being practiced there as well uh so yeah there are certain tribal communities that that had this practice why they did why they had it what was the origin of this i am not quite sure but it's an interesting topic maybe we can maybe i can find somebody to discuss this with interesting right let's find some other questions <clears throat> um aritra kar says if scientists don't know anything about dark matter and dark energy then how do they predict that the universe will end in this way we have no predictions about the end of the universe we don't know which way the universe is going to end we have certain speculations maybe there'll be a big rip maybe there'll be a big crunch maybe we're in a cyclic oscillating universe we don't know we don't have sufficient data to give any uh clear cut answers as as to what's going to be the eventual fate of the universe as you say we don't know anything about dark matter and dark energy which together comprises 95% of the matter energy composition of the universe and even of the uh, when we look at the 5% universe that we can actually possibly see we understand it only very very rudimentary in a very rudimentary fashion we don't even understand that properly so we have essentially no clue as to what the universe is we do have working technology and all that because of which we have we are able to do these things and that gives us the impression that we are really in control of everything and we know everything but we don't so we don't know in what way the universe is going to end whether it's going to be a big rip or a big crunch or whether we have a cyclic universe or anything of anything at all so we don't have predictions as to how the universe is going to end or what eventual fate it's going to meet Okay um what else do we have um can sentinels be cannibals that's what ashutosh is asking so the, what he means is the people of the so called sentinel island it's an island that is the name has been given given by the british so it's part of the uh, andaman nicobar archipelago let me show you where it is why not let's do that give me a minute let me pull up a map and share that with you so and once again <laughs> one second let me pull it up okay this is the map so let's dive into the bay of bengal where is sentinel island that's the question i think it is this one here this is called the north sentinel island it is in the andaman archipelago let's take a look at how it is as you can see it's just forest 
and you will find a shipwrecked ship somewhere here if we can still see it it was somewhere here yeah there it is so this is a shipwreck which happened a couple of decades about 3 decades ago maybe in the 1980s or so so this is the uh, one of the last this island is the home of one of the last uncontacted peoples in the world they are mostly uncontacted so there is a group of people living on this island they have been stuck here for about 30 or 40000 years so they probably were migrating from africa to some place via the sea route and they got shipwrecked here possibly and they got uh, stranded on this island and they have been stranded here for 30 or 40000 years and uh, we don't know what their practices are they are very hostile to any outsider uh, there are reports of people having having been killed when they ventured onto this island the last such um, incident was about about a year or two ago when some american idiot went there with a bible he wanted to convert them to christianity and they greeted him with arrows and they killed him so this guy went there illegally because the indian government has decreed that nobody is allowed on this island these people will be left alone and they will not be interfered with so essentially this is an autonomous island which is under india's protection it is obviously part of india but indian law doesn't run over the, on this island we have decided that we will not interfere with anything they do so could they be cannibals i mean we have no evidence of them practicing cannibalism but it's clearly a very interesting set of people we don't know what is the population today maybe it's a few hundred maybe it's a few dozens we don't quite know uh they were affected by the uh, 2004 andaman mega earthquake but they survived it i think the indian uh, air force sent helicopters to see if they are okay and i think they were okay so that's what i can say about these people so these people they are a very interesting group of people uh the last one of the last stone age people still remaining on the planet one of the last uncontacted people there was some contact uh, in the 19th century i think the british went there and they kind of messed things up treated them very badly in a variety of ways and that's why they are so hostile to outsiders so that's what we can say about them are they are they cannibals we have no evidence that they are cannibals most likely i think they may not be cannibals all right let's see some other questions what are your views on bollywood and its impact on the common people in india do you think they propagate certain narratives like the movies jb bollywood has a very negative influence on india i am sure there are certain good people in bollywood certain good filmmakers but o- overall it has a very negative influence on the people of india the kind of music for instance it doesn't the music the dance and whatever they represent it does it does not represent indian culture at all they are trying to pass off elements of foreign cultures as indian culture and they are very they, there is clearly a demonstrable proven element of hindu phobia that has been 
present in Bollywood since the 1970s, 1980s onwards. Today, Bollywood is overwhelmingly Hindu-phobic. And this Joy Beam, I haven't seen it. I don't know what it's about, but I, I'm, I have heard reports of the kind of uh, ideological slant this, mov- this movie has. So there is a great deal of Hindu-phobia in Bollywood and the kind of music they are throwing out, it's terrible. And uh, that's what's influencing the minds of the youngsters today. They think all this is cool, you know, to dress like a Bollywood person, to to behave like a Bollywood person, to play those songs. Good God. So, yeah, my overall view of Bollywood is very negative, unfortunately. Nothing, Nothing against anybody. But it's just what you observe and what's proven, right? So, so that's what Bollywood is. See, typically a film industry represents the culture of a country. If you look at the French film industry, it is one of France's greatest exports. If you look at Japanese films, the Japanese animes, you know, animation, animated uh, series and all that, they have done so much to promote Japan's culture and to enhance Japan's image worldwide. But if you see Bollywood movies, they actually denigrate Indian culture and make India look like a garbage dump. Right? So it it actually hurts India's image and harms India's reputation globally. So that is the kind of extremely negative effect Bollywood has. So that's, that's what it is. Okay, what else do we have? Let me take one more comment. Um, Okay, this is interesting. Atmika says, in the battle of the Mahabharata, there's a portion in which Abhimanyu, Arjuna's son, is caught in the Chakravyu and brutally murdered by multiple people. For once, I can digest that the likes of Duryodhan and Dushasan were part of the group, but why were Dronacharya and Kripacharya involved in this heinous crime? Were they really a part of this or has this been distorted with time? Okay. So what is the what was the Mahabharat? This, this uh, event that you are referring to, it was part of the great war called the Mahabharat. It was a war, right? When you kill somebody, <laughs> when a soldier dies during battle in a war, can that be considered to be a murder or a crime? What is the purpose of war? When does a war happen? War happens when you are unable to resolve whatever issues you have through diplomacy, through negotiations, through talk. So we know that Lord Krishna tried diplomacy. He tried his best to avert bloodshed. He tried his best to avert war. At the end, he realized that it's not working. He has failed. And that's why he said, we need to have a war. We need to go into the war. So that's why the war happened. Now, in war, you are going to resolve your issues through brutality, through violence. That is the nature of war. If somebody dies in war while engaging in battle, that is not a crime. That is not a murder. Abhimanyu was a warrior. He was an exceptionally gifted warrior. He was better than most warriors. I know he was 16 years old. He was 16 
but he went and participated in the war he must have killed several enemy soldiers at least because he was a great soldier great warrior one person was not enough to defeat him and he willingly went into this formation called the chakravyu and he went inside the chakravyu with the objective of killing everyone who was there and when somebody comes to kill you it is your duty to kill them back to try to kill them and maybe he was so good that multiple people had to fight him and kill him that is the nature of war there is no right or wrong once a war starts there is, there is only one objective of war the only objective in warfare is to win there is no consolation prize or second prize you don't get a prize for participating oh you participated no there is only one prize which is victory and typically the losers they often die that's just how it is that is the brutal nature of warfare there is no right or wrong once you engage in warfare yes in the past indian soldiers indian warriors they engaged they 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 observed certain rules and all that but many of those rules were broken during the mahabharat war we know that the pandavas broke some rules the the kauravas also broke some rules that all shows what human nature is about but at the end of the day the only objective is to win and the only objective is to kill those who want to kill you whether it is one person whether it is 500 people doesn't matter every battle every combat cannot be one on one sometimes you will blunder into enemy territory and multiple soldiers will, will be avail- available to fight you in that case 10 people may kill someone that's just the way it is there's no right or wrong so i do not see this I, I, it doesn't matter whether duryodhan dushasan or anybody else was part of that group yes it was a group of people who killed abhimanyu and that's just the way it is it's not a crime and maybe he was young but then if he was that young why did he engage, why did he go into battle he was a trained warrior he was a, an exceptional warrior even at the age of 16 he was a trained killer so you know what this is just how it goes <laughs> that's just how it is okay kalyan kartik says nuclear powered rockets for the p- future of space travel i certainly think present day ones are rudimentary machines for the obstacles we may face in the future in future space observation so people have tried all kinds of fuels for rockets they have tried hydrogen peroxide essentially steam rockets they have tried uh, it's all about the specific impulse of the fuel fuel that you're using so if you tra- take uh, aviation fuel which is kerosene if you take petrol the specific impulse is not quite great uh, when you use other fuels like hydrogen and oxygen that reaction the specific impulse is much higher so you need something with a very high specific impulse for rocket propulsion for in order to break free of the earth's gravity by uh, by going past escape velocity so present in, in the present day we have a, a number of fuels hypergolic fuels etc which are used for rocket uh, propulsion now nuclear power is certainly something that would be even more powerful but uh, there is no we don't have a way of controlling a nuclear explosion right so i think in the 1970s 60s perhaps there was um a project 
in America, in, maybe it was a NASA project, I think, in which they were trying to develop or they were they were looking at the possibility of developing rockets powered by nuclear explosions. And the uh, the concept was shown to be viable. So it's certainly possible to send a rocket to Mars by atomic bomb. It's certainly possible. And such rockets will, by necessity, have to be huge, mega monster rockets. Not these thin little things which go up today. And you can send hundreds of people on that if you can make it safe enough. So it is certainly possible. But of course, nuclear fallout is not good for the atmosphere, for the environment. It's going to release radiation, which is going to be harmful to, to life. So there will first be the need to find a way to ensure somehow, if it is even possible, to ensure that this nuclear fallout isn't a problem. It, it isn't contaminate the environment, the atmosphere. So technically, it is certainly possible. It may even be a superior form of travel. It may allow you to send hundreds of tons of payload into, into orbit and beyond. But there's always a problem of the nuclear fallout that will contaminate the atmosphere. So if that can somehow be resolved, it's a it's certainly a viable way and, a, and, a, and possibly a superior way of engaging in space travel. So very interesting question. Right. Right. Let's see. What else do we have? Um, many questions are being repeated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Is it true that the Cholas swam across the Indian Ocean since they were rudimentary at technology? <laughs> Okay, uh, let me take this seriously and let's take a look at the Indian Ocean. Let's take a look at the Indian Ocean. The, the Cholas were essentially uh, in present-day Tamil Nadu, Madurai, was it? Uh, let's say they were from here and they had to. They wanted to conquer Southeast Asia, starting from Java, Sumatra, etc. This region here, if you can see my mouse pointer. So let's calculate the distance from here roughly from here to here, let's say. That's 2,000 kilometers. Now, <laughs> is it possible for a human being to swim 2,000 kilometers? Is it possible for a human being to swim 100 kilometers? Is it possible to swim 2,000 kilometers and then have the strength to conquer an entire empire? Does it make any sense? And who says that they were very rudimentary at technology? You are making this presupposition, my, my dear friend, that the Cholas were rudimentary at technology. What, what, what makes you think this? The Cholas were a very sophisticated empire. They had a very, they had the most powerful navy of that time on the planet. They were a maritime empire. They had marines, you know, marines, marine soldiers. They put those marines on their ships. They sailed across the entire Indian Ocean, the Bay of Bengal, and then they reached Java, Sumatra. 
then after that long journey they conquered that entire empire and they not only conquered that they conquered the entirety of southeast asia vietnam thailand cambodia laos philippines as well can you do that by swimming won't you need to carry weaponry equipment and much more okay so i hope i have answered this question <laughs> you would need to be super olympic questions i mean a, a thousand times superior maybe a million times superior to the best olympic swimmer in order to to achieve that 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 uh, feat all right what else do we have what else do we have any interesting questions okay let me take a question from a previous comment okay sagar says please speak about indian math books leelavathi etc are these books better than our modern school texts do they have any relevance in today's modern world so let me speak about the leelavathi so the leelavathi was written by one of our greatest scientists mathematician as well as astronomer whose name was bhaskara bhaskara acharya he is known as bhaskar the second he is supposed to have lived in the 12th century ad that's what is believed so he wrote his greatest work was called the siddhanta shiromani which is believed to have been written in that time 12th century so this was a book this this work comprised essentially three sections the first was called the lilavati which was about 13 chapters it was a book of arithmetic and measurement the second section was called the bija ganit which was a book which was a treatise on algebra and the third was called ganit adhyay and gol adhyay which essentially covered astronomy so the lilavati which you speak about is a book of arithmetic and measurement mostly so bhaskara had a kid a child it was a girl child her name was lilavati he wrote this book to get her interested in mathematics and to teach her the fundamentals of arithmetic and measurement this book is available today i have it somewhere in english translation it's an excellent book for kids to learn math from it's very relevant even today it's an excellent book to learn math from arithmetic from and the existence of this book also debunks this great claim that is made that oh my god indians they were patriarchal misogynistic girls did not have access to education and all that come on he wrote this book for his daughter to teach her math so you know so that's what it is about there are so many such texts from other great mathematicians and scientists as well but if you ask me about the leelavathi this is what i can say about that you can buy it online i'm sure this book very good book okay do we have any other interesting questions um i am not um an expert in this dynasty i'm very sorry maybe i will study it 
sometime in the future and if i do i may get back to you about this but i am not the right person to give you any details about this dynasty okay anything else any other good questions i'm sure there are thousands but i need to find them uh what else do we have <laughs> okay let's see this uh what's your opinion about the 1964 blue book alien interview so i am not aware of this interview but i am aware of something called the project blue book which is supposedly a top secret thing or something in which uh, the americans took alien took reports of alien contact very seriously they took reports of ufo's very seriously and they actually had a team investigating all of this and i'm not sure if it has been declassified or not but apparently they found evidence apparently but some of these reports may have been genuine and there may actually have been unexplained and unexplainable flying object phenomena that may possibly have some alien origin so there was this project called project blue book i think it has been covered in uh, in movies or, or or serials as well perhaps i'm not quite sure but that's what i can say about this so it's certainly something very that's very interesting but personally i have never found any unequivocal incontrovertible proof of alien visitation on earth so it's certainly something that's very interesting but we still don't have proof from from what i know okay where are we vertels do we have please tell us about yuri bejmenov about a subversion theory so this is something that's big i can tell you in short who he was he was a soviet defector to the united states uh he defected from india so he was a very big fan of india apparently he was very interested in indian culture and he eventually became disillusioned with the soviet union with the ussr he was apparently a member of the kgb which is the you know what it is their secret service it used to be and he became disillusioned with the methods and everything of the ussr he decided to defect to the west so he did this defection from india from new delhi most likely he disguised himself as a tourist and uh, escaped to greece and from greece he went he eventually ended up in the united states and i think a couple of his lectures are quite famous I, they may be available on youtube in which he speaks about the subversion theory which essentially says that the ussr its objective was to subvert american society ideologically and uh, hollow out the us from within so what he claimed is that the primary objective of the kgb was not to indulge in engage in espionage on american soil it was to use american institutions american culture and american systems 
to subvert the minds of Americans, make them pro-left, pro-Marxism, pro-socialism, pro pro all that, and make them move away from what is known as American values, capitalism, all that. So that's the claims he made in the 1990s. It's on it's on video record. Now I will leave it to you to judge whether such a shift has happened or not in American society. That's the interesting part. So what I would recommend is instead of asking me, watch a video, watch the video. I think it's available online. He has uh, explained this in great detail in one of these video lectures. So check it out. It's very interesting. Okay. Any other questions? What do you think of Bob Lazar's story? If you don't know, please research a bit. Yes, sir. Your wish is my command. I will do more. I will do more research. <laughs> uh, what else do we have? Okay. Okay, bye bye. <laughs> if you're leaving, uh, okay. Rishab says there are similarities between our mythology and foreign mythologies like Greek, Rome, etc. So when and how do you think these stories travel outside? I have spoken about this in great detail in my previous videos. I have short clips about this as well. You will see clear, clear similarities between the Indian Vedic pantheon of gods, the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon, the Nordic, Teutonic, Viking pantheon, the Slavic gods. It's all the same. It's all the same. I have explained in detail how this would have happened. It's because of out of, out of India migrations thousands of years before today, which are recorded in Indian literature. Multiple waves of migrations out of India. Right, so I have spoken about this in great detail, not in great detail, but in significant detail. Please check out my older videos. I have hundreds of videos on the channel. Do a simple search, you'll find it. Okay, what's my opinion about Shivaji's death? The great Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj, he died very young, didn't he? He died at the age of 50, I think, around 50, most likely 50-50 itself. And clearly he died very young. 50 is too early for somebody to die. So, so the question has always remained, was his death a natural death? Was he poisoned? I think I will have to bring in an expert to discuss this. It's a very good question. I personally don't have answers to this. It's clearly a very early death. And he was a vigorous man. He was mostly a healthy man. We don't know of any health issues that he may have had. So it's quite strange he died so early. So yeah, was there some, some foul play uh, done? We, I, I personally don't know, but maybe I will, I will call someone to answer this question in the future somebody who is an expert in this matter, in the in the history of the Maratha empire. But it's clearly something that's, that sounds a little fishy to me. He died too young. Okay. Do we have any other interesting questions? 
is socialism feasible and will it slow down or or hasten technological growth haven't you seen the history of socialism in india from 1947 onwards india followed socialism right the word socialist was even inserted in, inserted into india's constitution have you not seen what happened in india in that time did it, did india do well as a socialist nation did you see an exponential increase or even a slow increase in technological growth that is your answer my friends okay what else do we have um this question again <laughs> it's indian civilization is there a possibility that the universe we live in is created as the simulation by some intelligent life there is a possibility yes it's not it is certainly a plausible hypothesis do we have evidence no but it's certainly plausible so yes there is a possibility there is a possibility some people say that this is nonsense you cannot think of this but you know what you have to keep your um, an open mind don't become narrow minded and dogmatic there is certainly a possibility that we are living inside a simulation and i have spoken about this also many times in the past so yes it is possible what happened after lord krishna's death well the rest of indian history happened <laughs> the rest of indian history happened after his death so essentially he installed parikshit as the emperor parikshit was the son of abhimanyu so the pandava lineage continued and uh, then there were certain certain other descendants of this lineage and then the rest of indian history happened so that's what i can say in brief okay is it true that hitler invited a sanskrit scholar to germany to develop nukes so is there something in the sanskrit language that allows you that that gives you knowledge of nuclear physics why do you do you need a knowledge of sanskrit to develop nuclear weapons so as far as i know this is not the case is jainism older than hinduism <laughs> uh there is no evidence that either or is a more see jainism hinduism buddhism everything else ism which came out of india is the same culture it's thousands of years old these are not separate religions please drill this into your heads jainism is not a separate religion from hinduism buddhism is not a separate religion this is all part of the dharmic tradition it is all part of what we call sanatan dharma therefore this question doesn't make any sense at all okay
All right. What are your views on the new education policy, NEP, the new education system? Uh, I think it's like placing a band-aid on a gunshot wound. It does nothing. It's completely pointless. Maybe there are some small, tiny cosmetic improvements here or there. But overall, it's the same colonial system that is being continued. I have several episodes purely dedicated to education. Please take a look in which I have spoken about this these things in great detail. In great detail. All right. Uh, uh, did the people from the Mahabharat and Ramayana era live longer than people who live today than us? We don't know. How do we know? We don't have records. We don't have data. We don't have hard data. Right. So how do we how do I answer the question? There are claims. There are many people who claim that humans lived for hundreds of years. But where is the evidence? Where is the evidence for that? And we know today that human life that human life typically doesn't extend much beyond 100 years. Some people are known to have lived into their 130s, maybe 140s at most. So biologically we know that the human lifespan has a certain limit. We have evidence for centuries, essentially, for thousands of years, maybe beyond two, three, hundred thousand years of Homo sapiens. And we have never found found a skeleton of Homo sapiens that, that has lived beyond a hundred or 120, 130 years. Because you can date the age with scientific tools. So there is no evidence that humans lived for centuries or any such thing. So the answer I can give you is there is no evidence that we have of longer lifespans during the Ramayana or Mahabharat eras. We don't even know exactly when they, these eras happened because we have lost the evidence. So that's what I can say. All right, what else do we have? Do we have evidential history of Jainism before Mahavira? Uh, it can debunk AIT as I think Jainism originated after Harappa and Vedic age people are the lineage of Harappans. We have no evidence for any of these things. We have no evidence that, that the Vedic age people are the lineage of Harappans. They came after Harappa. We have no evidence of that. I think the Vedic, the Vedic age happened before these great urban cities. So what we call the Harappan age is this great urbanization of ancient India, which happened about 5000 years before today. The Vedic age, if you if you read the Vedic texts, the Rig Veda, etc., they depict a rural India. They depict a pastoral lifestyle. They do not depict an urban civilization. So clearly the Vedic age was way before the so-called Harappan age of India. Right. So that's the first point. Now, uh, do we have evidential history of Jainism before Mahavira? Well, according to Jain records, according to Jain uh, 
tradition. Um, Vardhaman Mahavir was the 24th Tirthankar of Jainism. There were 23 great Tirthankars before him. Now, do we have actual evidence of this? We don't. We lost all our ancient records a thousand years before today. So we have no actual evidence of this. But I see no reason to not believe the Jain tradition. So yes, there most likely were 23 great Tirthankars before Vardhavan Mahavir. And that, see, that clearly is something that goes back centuries, if not millennia. But we don't have any actual hard evidence of the dates or any of any of that. So today, this is where we are. We have lost all the real records of our history. So we only have to make educated guesses as of today and indulge in some speculation. But I refuse to say that this is all myths. This is not myths. These are all our ancient traditions, which are all based in reality. These things actually happened. So that's what I can say about it. All right, what else do we have? I think, uh, yeah, it's already nearly two hours. So let us let us wrap it up over, over here right now. So thank you for the questions. It was wonderful. Very interesting questions I took today. And let's keep doing this. Let us keep doing this. And very soon you will see different things on this channel, conversations and other things as well. So stay tuned for that coming very soon. All right, I will see you in next week's live streams. Until then, take care. Thank you very much for your viewership. Thank you for everything. And see you very soon in the next episode. Bye.